So it is, uh, what, August 18th, 2013. Our message this morning is called The Real Thing. And uh, I just would like to give a public shout out to the Treister family. I thought that word on Wednesday was extraordinary. Where are you? It was titled. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you really should. It was a tremendous blessing. Some of us ankle deep, some of us waist deep, and all of us wanting to go over our head in the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen? There was a one family home meeting this last Friday night, and uh, I hear that Jesus himself showed up in that meeting by way of his spirit. Come on, can y'all give a hand clap for that meeting? It seems that Brother Vincent just tore the place up, preaching on edification and glorification, the Holy Spirit symphony. It seems that Jesus is a uh, maestro. He's the, how'd you say it, Brent? The conductor. And uh, he is moving through his body everywhere. There were tongues and interpretations and words of uh, prophecy and all kind of encouraging things. You know, the crown and jewel of any ministry is when outside these walls, you have the same things going on as inside these walls. We do not want to be undercover Christians. You know, I was driving from here to San Antonio just the other day, and there's nothing I detest more than an unmarked police car. I think they ought to have to paint those things in hunter's orange. The lights ought to be made to reflect you should know what you're dealing with because these days you can't tell what it is. I think every Christian ought to be conspicuous. We ought to know who belongs to Jesus. Amen. I'd like to talk to you this morning out of a very odd place in the scripture. Is that all right? I know it won't surprise you. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. You're going to be in 1 Samuel 31. We're going to be talking about the real thing this morning in 1st Samuel 31 we have a very very sad setting King Saul spending his years latter years of his life in disobedience is about to die near Mount Gilboa and his sons with him now I'd like you to remember something about King Saul whether or not he was a good man he was the man who was anointed by God. He was. Whether or not you like him and you like the things that he did, he still had his son Jonathan, who was a good man anointed by God. Some people might breathe a sigh of relief when Saul died, but not even David, his successor, did. They grieved, and they grieved because this man was anointed by God. We're about to read about his death and we get a little insight into the plan of the enemy. In 1 Samuel 31, we're going to be in the 8th verse. It says, The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. Guys, we need to know that this is what the enemy would like to have happen to you. He would like you to finish your anointed years 
in disgrace, not having done what God called you to do. He would like to separate you from your head. And Christians, your head is Christ. He'd like to separate you from your head. And he would like to strip you of your armor. This is his battle plan. And if he can manage to do that, he will hang you on a wall in a populous city for everyone to see so that everyone will know Christians are hypocrites. Everyone will know that all churches are full of hypocrites. How many times have you heard it? You heard it many times in your life and you've heard it many times in your life because there have been many who were anointed as kings in the kingdom, priests, a kingdom of priests, who got separated from their head and who found themselves with no armor. Guys, the lifestyle that we live is the armor of God. A helmet of salvation is a man who has a firm grasp on the revelation of salvation. A man with a breastplate of righteousness is a man who acts righteously. So when you say something negative about him, it bounces off. Nobody would believe you. A man who wears the belt of truth around his waist is a man who never gets caught in a lie because he never told a lie to be caught in. A man whose feet are shed with the preparation of the gospel peace is a man whose footsteps are ordered by God, like Psalm 37, 23 says. A man with the sword of the Spirit, the word of God in his hand, is a man that has hidden that word in his heart and can pull it out of his mouth at will. A man with the shield of faith is someone who has so learned to trust in the living God that it shields him from all fear all fiery darts. The devil would like to strip your armor from you. He would like to keep you from living the life that God called you to lead. He'd like to separate you from the head that is Christ and hang you on a wall. Last week we began our message with a picture of a cardo. This was the center street in Beit Shen. This is where they hung Saul. They wanted him on the main drag. They wanted him out there where everybody could see what the enemy does to the anointed of God. Now listen to what happens. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. How fast does the news spread that a man of God did wrong? I live in a city that's famous for it. The 80s were littered with it. Let a thousand people get saved and no news media outlet anywhere in the world will pick it up. But one, let one pastor of 500 have a moral failing and it'll be on all the local channels. Did you know that the devil spells, spreads a not so good gospel? Don't let him use you to do it. They put his armor in the temple of the asterisk and fastened his body to the wall at Bet Shin. They separated his body from the armor to show this. You have to imagine it now. This stripped body with no head is just flesh. This is what the devil would like to expose you as. It's just flesh. No armor of God, nothing supernatural, not connected to any divine source. This is his plan. He wants to reduce you to a mere animal that the scientists call human beings. 
When the people in Jabesh Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed. Come on, somebody say all. All their valiant men journeyed. Not a few stayed home. All of them went. Every man with courage journeyed through the night to Bet Shin. It took every courageous man. And when did they have to journey? They had to journey at night. And they went to Bet Shan to do something. They wanted to cut down what the Philistines had put up. They wanted to remove the reproach that was on the name of the Lord because of this. All their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bet Shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons. Who's one of those sons, friend? Jonathan, beloved of David. What a type of a good Christian soldier is that man. From the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. They burned what was just flesh. Verse 13. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh and they fasted seven days. What an interesting thing. The story involves valiant men. It involves a journey through the night. It involves cutting down reproach and planting a testimony. The tamarisk tree is an evergreen tree in Israel. Abraham used it to mark a well of salvation in the book of Genesis. The, book, the, the Bible describes a tamarisk tree as something that is green all year long. It's like a big billboard that says something went in the ground here and something's going to come out glorified. Can anybody in here rejoice with me in a scripture like Micah? Micah 7, 8. Do not gloat over me, my enemy, for though I have fallen, yet will I rise. Jonathan may have been struck down with his father. He may have been stripped of his armor. He may have been separated from his head. But he will rise again and his bones are under a tree in Israel and they'll come out of the ground and be stripped with the Holy Ghost flesh and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Some of you sit here today as valiant men. Some of you sit here today in the dead of night, spiritually. Others of you are little more than flesh that have been separated from your head and you're hoping there's still a little bit of a bone testimony in there. Come on, you ever been chilled down to the bone? Shivered? You ever been cut to the bone? There is a part of you that is hard, friends. There's a part of you that just doesn't bruise, it doesn't crack, it doesn't break easily. There is steel inside of you, and it is the testimony of the Word of God. And you can burn the flesh, you can strip off armor, you can separate a head, but the testimony is still there. And you might have been beat into a greasy little spot on the ground, but I'm telling you that the testimony of the living God will shout out of you, I'm blessed, because there's still hope for those who have fallen in Christ. While we're in Samuel, let us talk about valiant men for a few minutes. Is that okay? It's not something we see just a great deal, so we might as well talk about them some. How many of you think Saul started off a bad guy? Well, not one hand goes up. That's because he didn't start that way. The living God called Saul. I talked about this last week, and it's not something that's preached on a lot. In 2 Samuel 10, verse 6, 
The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. King Saul was born again. He was changed from the old man into a new man by the Spirit of the living God. Verse 9 of chapter 10. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. So we have a spirit-changed man, a man who's changed in his very heart. Saul is a man much like us at this point, called of God, called to be among the people of God, called to lead, and God has changed him. Look at this with verse 26. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. What is a valiant man? This word in Hebrew is gibber. It means mighty. It also means good. When the angel of God showed up to the man who is threshing his wheat in a wine press named Gideon, he's hiding his produce in a place no one will see it because he's a coward. God speaks to him through an angel and says, Mighty warrior. Giver Hail, mighty warrior is the word. These are the only kind of men that Saul surrounded himself with. Only those who were courageous. Only those who were mighty in the presence of God. Do you believe that the king of Israel should be surrounded by the courageous? Do you believe that? Or do you think that the kingdom of God should be made up of cowards? It's a good question, isn't it? Because I can find time and time again in the Bible where God gathered together all the valiant men. They did things like break through the enemy lines and bring the king of Israel a drink of water. They did things like go into the enemy territory and cut down a reproach to the name of God, bring it back and turn it into a blessing. They did things that were courageous. Can you think of a single gathering of cowards in the Bible? I did find one. I mean a gathering of pansies and daffodils. Those who were filled with fear. Those who didn't have a courageous bone in their body. You'll find it in Revelation 21 in verse 6. Say there when you were there. 21 and verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Who's speaking here, friends? That's Jesus. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I'm going to tell you that the only kind of people the king of Israel will draw to himself are those that have the courage to act on their belief. 
See, if you believe that David is the king of Israel, you will rally to him. If you believe that Jesus is the savior of the world, you will rally to him. And if you rally to them and you call them your king, you call them your Lord, how can you not do what they say? We have to. It's a cowardly thing to claim Jesus as Lord and then not do what he says. Cowards, murderers, sexually immoral, idolaters, those who practice magic arts, and all liars, they cannot inherit the kingdom. So how then do we go from cowardly to valiant? Before we get to that, that is our message today. How do you go from cowardly to valiant? You know, it's an interesting thing that Abraham Lincoln said about it. He said, to sin by silence when they should protest makes cowards of men. Sometimes it's not that you didn't speak up for the Lord or rather that you said the wrong thing. Sometimes we just stand by while the world goes to hell in a handbasket and we don't care. How many of you know that if you love the Lord, you have to love your fellow man? How many of you love the Lord? How many of you love the Lord? So look at your neighbor and say, today I love you. Tomorrow I'm not so sure, but today I choose to love you. <laughs> I want you to understand it's not easy loving our fellow man. You know that. We steal from each other. We lie to each other. We slander each other. Why y'all looking shocked? Don't act like you don't do it. It's easy to love the Lord. He's perfect. It's hard to love his people. They're just called to be perfect. But your love for the Lord is reflected in the way that you do or do not love people. And it is a valiant thing, a courageous thing, to love someone that may not love you back. It is a courageous thing, a valiant thing to do kind things for someone that may not pay you back. Amen. See, and herein lies the courage of the gospel. The courage of the gospel is that you love the Lord enough to love Nolan even if Nolan don't love you. But he does because he loves Jesus. The courage of the gospel is that you look in the face of the one throwing stones at you and you say, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. So how will they know that you're a Christian? They're going to know you're a Christian by your love. We can talk it all day long. You can draw little fuzzy hearts and pass notes to each other, and that's not love. Love is something that can be demonstrated. The fifth chapter of Romans says, but he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That is a valiant man. He didn't wait to see whether or not you would respond. He didn't send out a survey or a census that says, if I do this, what will be the result? He was courageous and he trusted the living God. Oh, come on. Any ladies in here? had somebody profess their love to them someplace in their life. Oh, now don't lie. Caitlin, you remember when Spencer was loving on you? Now let's talk about the, oh, look, y'all are off the hook now. I see Ella and Justin. Now it's a terrible thing because Justin might glance over at Ella and he might go, whew, 
I believe God brought her here for me. But what does he want to know before he professes his love to her? He wants to know that it'll be reciprocated. Anybody ever been in that situation? Stand up, Judah. Anybody ever been in that situation? I saw the way that you were looking at me, and I just wanted to let you know, this is not working, is it? Sit down. Come here, Natalie. Stand up. You know, I thought I caught a certain glance from your eye. And I can see that you're interested, and I wanted to let you know that I'm interested. And, of course, Natalie says, actually, I was looking at the Popeye's chicken sign behind your head. <laughs> it's an embarrassing thing, isn't it? Do you know why, ladies, you should want your husband to open the door? Do you know why you should have him propose to you? Do you know why the man goes first? He goes first because it's the first step in leadership in his life to be Christ-like. Christ went first. So when Justin figures out that he thinks Ella might be the one, he has to venture across the dance floor, so to speak, say, I have feelings for you. Do you have feelings for me? It's a valiant thing. Because in that moment, he's just put his heart in her hand. And, of course, she can't do anything but be honest. It would be cruel beyond measure to be dishonest about it. If she says, oh, yes, Justin, I've thought fondly of you for a long time, then he walks off and she goes, oh, I'm going to throw up. That's a problem, isn't it? You're not doing that, are you, Ella? He doesn't make you want to throw up. Y'all look kind of happy to sit next to each other. Don't be too happy to sit next to each other. It is a valiant thing to express love when you don't know if it will be reciprocated. That is a courageous thing. Any coward can give full vent to his anger. Any coward can be a slave to his emotions. Any coward can say, they're ugly to me. I'll be ugly back. But it takes a valiant man to restrain that flesh. One that is courageous that says, I choose to act like Christ because I love him. And I love you no matter what you do to me. The king of Israel will only accept valiant men in his home. That's what I learned from reading about Saul. Amen, amen. I don't want to sin in my silence like Abraham Lincoln said. Why don't we go to Acts 4 and look at an example of some courageous men. Is that okay? Say Acts 4 and get with me to verse 8. Wow. Dustin? You always amaze me how fast you are with scriptures. That's something. He's got a special transmission in there. It's got a shift kit. It's only three speeds. He's catching little chirps in every, every single gear. Here, an Allison transmission. Get your Chevy nonsense out of here. All right, here comes Acts 4 and verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of, of the people, if we're being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a crippled and are asked how he is healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone which you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else.
For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Is that pretty bold? Look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Jesus supplies the courage that we need. When we look at him, we see the perfect example of what it is to be a valiant man. No school can teach you to be courageous. No special degree and courage can be awarded. I find it hilarious that you can get a master's of divinity from an institution of higher learning but you cannot get courage anywhere except from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Once, twice in a man's life, he may have that special moment where he's shown to be a hero. Every single day, you have the power to prove that you're not a coward simply by loving the people around you and not yielding to the satanic emotions that float through our bodies. Do you want to be courageous? With all my heart, I do. It causes people to take note that we've been with Jesus because they know that you're made of the same thing they're made of. They know that when it rains, you don't want to smile. They know that when there's a traffic jam, you don't want to sing praises. They know it because they know how they feel. And when you act in a way that is contrary to your flesh and acknowledges the Spirit of God, it causes them to go, something's different about that one. You know, we wouldn't have to have TV commercials for churches if the people simply were courageous, valiant men. You are the living epistles. This was God's marketing program. Don't you find it strange when he wanted to save the world? He didn't enlist the imperial commercial campaigns of Rome. He didn't rain manna from the heavens. He didn't paint it across the sky. He simply filled men with his presence and caused them to act contrary to their fallen nature. And that spread the gospel as far as the people in this room over a distance of 2,000 years. Tell me, is that courageous? The Apostle Paul in the 16th chapter of Corinthians, verse 13 and 14, said it this way. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Now, what would you expect to come after that? Be strong. I don't know. Pick up a sword, step in a ring. I would think so many things. You know what he says? Verse 14, do everything in love. Apparently, the most courageous, bold, strong thing that you can do is to stand firmly with your feet planted in faith and love the unlovable. Anybody in here love Jesus just a whole bunch? Come on. See, I'm just some kind of crazy in love with Jesus. I mean, I'm way past fanatic. I've been called cult. I've been called, I see him as a compliment at this point. It doesn't hurt my feelings even a little bit. I learned to reinterpret all of those words as he simply loves Jesus more than you. And I, I can actually hug people and say thank you when that happens. It doesn't bother me even a little bit anymore. But you know what does get to me just a little bit? Let's just say that I'm 
I'm showing some kind of kindness to Steve. And Steve's not in a place in his life where he can receive that yet. You ever been there? Somebody says, you look nice today, but you didn't feel nice, and you couldn't even respond to him. You're like, you know, get him the ugly eye. Maybe I caught Steve on a bad day. So the next day I try it. And maybe I caught him on his second bad day. Don't act like you hadn't had two in a row. And so Matthew looks over and he says, you know, Eric's such an idiot. He needs to leave Steve alone. There's this worldly wisdom that judges people unworthy of your courageous love. And it judges them unworthy based on the way they react. Well, friends, what if we applied that standard across the board? How many times did you say no to the Spirit of God before you became born again? What if he gave up on you? I am so thankful that the King of Kings did not give up on me. By the time I was 18 years old, I had said no a whole lot more than I had said yes. But he didn't give up on me. And one day, his spirit broke through my darkness, traveled all the way through my night, and he rescued me from the reproach I had brought on myself. You know what that does? It makes me want to do it for him, for other people. If you have been born again and saved by the Spirit of God, how can you not care about those who still need what you have? It burns in me. I tell my family we're going to go to a lake. We're just going to go hang out. Of course, we're going to bring the rest of the ministry team just to hang out. Of course, we're talking about ministry the whole time we're there just to hang out. And then we find out the boat captain doesn't see himself like Jesus sees him. Matthew takes a turn. I take a turn. Al takes a turn. Michael takes a turn. He's going to get born again. It's just a matter of time. When we paid the man, he tried to give it back. And he said, fighting off tears, use this on something better than me. I think the Spirit of God was dealing with his heart. So I did something really uncomfortable for lost men just because I like that kind of thing. And I grabbed him by his shoulders and I gave him a big hug. And I shoved that money in his pocket. And I said, we're using it on the best thing we know how. Jesus wants to bless you. I want you to understand something. You never know when that dam is going to break. All you see is the waters of judgment piling up and piling up and piling up. It takes courage to try one more time. It takes courage to try one more time. Do you know how many times I have written people off? Jesus never let, all I got to do is fast or something and he'll remind me. Yeah, you're done with them and I'm not. I'm like, you are kidding, Lord. It's been 20 years. Do you remember how hard-headed you were? Okay, that's not really what he says. You know how hard-headed you are? That's what he said to me. And you know, I know that it sounds courageous to face a road blockade in Mexico. Or it sounds courageous to go to some people that maybe you've never been to before and you don't know how they're going to treat you. 
But the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life were dial a phone number of somebody that I didn't really want to talk to. The hardest things I've ever had to do in my life was say I was sorry when it was them who wronged me. The hardest things I've ever had to do was forgive people because Jesus forgave me. But the king surrounds himself only with valiant men. And you have a choice. You can be a valiant man. It's up to you. Turn with me to Hebrews 3. Y'all still with me? In Hebrews 3, we're going to pick up in the sixth verse. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's not divorce this from the topic. The topic is be courageous enough to do what the Spirit tells you to do. Come on now, how many times has the Holy Ghost prompted you to speak to someone? How many times has the Holy Ghost told you, you need to be more full of me? There are manifestations that I want to bring into your life. There's gifting that you can yet flow in. And what do we do? Well, we go study it some more. Been studying it for years. The book of Ecclesiastes says, Much study wearies the body, and of making books there is no end. And every collegiate student knows that verse. But the moment the Holy Ghost tells you to do something that you don't want to do, oh, i got to go study for a while. Or maybe debate it with my friend. You know what that's called, friend? Hardness of heart. When he speaks, we have to obey then, not later. Cassidy used to have a sign for her children above her refrigerator. It said, slow obedience is no obedience. Got to love the wisdom from mamas. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years and saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly the confidence till the end that we had at first. We're in a battle to steal our courage. We're in warfare with the Philistines who want to come and strip the dead. Why didn't they try to strip the living, friends? Because the living fight back. The living are full of courage. The living know how to use their armor. The living are connected to their head. The living are a threat. So these cowards feast on the dead. I'm not going to be dead. Are you going to be dead? I have the spirit of the living God in me, and I will not be separated from Christ. And I will not be stripped of my armor because I have a choice. 
The Lord will meet me in the courage he gives me to do what the cowardly won't do. Obey the Spirit of God. Those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, is what the Bible says. We have to hold firmly to this confidence. We have to cling to that courage. Now, these valiant men journeyed all the way through the night. Turn with me to Acts 23. Say there when you're there. Acts 23, we're going to pick up in verse 9. Twenty-three, verse 9. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, speaking of Paul, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Friends, if a Roman commander fears for a prisoner... How bad does the situation have to be? He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. How bad is the situation when your Roman captor has to come and rescue you? The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Why did the Lord stand near Paul at night? You know, it starts when we're really little. My little Abby, y'all know how I love Abby, huh? I mean, I love them all, but I only dance with Abby. I only sing to Abby. I tried to dance with Judah the other day, but he wouldn't do it. (laughs) I sit and brush Abby's hair in the evening. Don't laugh. She's my little girl. I love her. And when it comes nighttime, she comes snuggle up next to me. She said, Daddy. Can I sleep in your bed tonight? I won't ask any other night. Of course, she says that every night, you know. (laughs) And if that doesn't work when she goes to her bed, she comes back and she goes, I'm scared. I say, oh, baby, you're going to be fine. Nothing to be scared of. You just cling to Jesus. When I tell her to cling to Jesus, what do you think she does? She clings to me. See, sometimes we just need Jesus with a little skin on him. We need to be able to see Jesus in our brothers. We need to be able to say, I'm in the middle of my spiritual night here, and I got to grab hold of somebody who is valiant to remind me to be valiant. Anybody in a tough place in this room? Come on. We can be honest with each other. I've been in lots of tough places. And were it not for the congregation of the living God, I wouldn't have survived them. We act like we need Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus himself teaches you you need your brothers. You need the community of God. You need a healthy, productive, vibrant, courageous church. This is how we spur one another on towards righteousness. This is why we don't forsake the fellowshipping together. This is why. Why did Jesus stand beside Paul in the night? Because no one else did. No one else there with him. But do you know what he tells him? He says, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, 
so you must also testify in Rome. There are times in the middle of the night when the living God will shake you in your spirit and tell you, take courage. Where do you take it from, friends? You got to get it from the guy standing next to you. And you need to hope that you've both been in the presence of Jesus. Come on, doesn't Ecclesiastes say two are better than one? If one falls down, what will the other do? Pick him up. Come on, look at your brother and say, I may need you to pick me up this week. See, there are times you need your brother to give you a helping hand. Two things I know about spiritual warfare. One is, for some reason, it always requires valiant men. The other is, it always requires you to journey through night. It always does. Night is the time where it's most difficult for us. Night is a metaphor in the Bible for death. In John 9, Jesus said, Night cometh when no man can work. There is an enemy. He's the last enemy to be put down, and he causes you to fear about what will happen if you don't eat, what will happen if you don't have something to wear, what will happen to you if you care about them. See, the old flesh says, I gets mine. The flesh wants you to take care of you, and the Spirit of God wants you to put your brother's needs before your own. Let's talk Psalm 91 for a minute. Y'all get there with me. This is the first time in a long time I've been doing good on the sermon time, but it's not over yet. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night. He doesn't say there is not a terror in the night. He doesn't say you won't face it. He says you won't fear it. The reason he says you won't fear it is because you will take the courage that he gives you and you will stand against your giant and say you come against me with spear and javelin. But I come against you with the armies of heaven. It's not me so much that you've defied as the Lord for whom I stand here today. Yes. He's given me the power of attorney to use his name. And so how can I fear you? I need you to understand that fear is an enemy of your faith. And that to stand in the face of terror without fear courageously is a statement of faith for the God who holds you in his hand. How funny then that we put our statements of faith in 14 points written by theological attorneys and then we debate them for centuries. Perhaps we do that because we've not had to stand our ground in the middle of a field and defend it from Philistines because we believed the word of the Almighty God. See, statements of faith on paper go out the window 
when the guns come out. Statements of faith on paper go out the window when they're burning Christians' houses. Statements of faith on paper go out the window when you're in a persecuted minority. The only statement of faith that you need to see is courage in the face of persecution because they trust the God to whom they belong. It always requires us to journey through the night. Do you know why the American military has been so powerful in these last 50 years? They own the night. They can see in the dark. Night vision by the American forces has been so superior to everyone else in the world that it's made us arrogant. Friends, there is only one hope to cling to in your dark times. And that is Jesus. Before you lead Psalm 91, look at verse 15. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him where? In trouble. See, he knew I was going to be in trouble when he called me. He found me in trouble. He expects to find me the next time in trouble. If you ever thought you were anything but trouble to the Lord, you were wrong. But he loves you and he loves it. He loves you to need him. He actually placed a curse upon the earth for your sake, the Bible says. Because your struggle against that curse causes you to say, I need you, Jesus. See, if night didn't come, you wouldn't appreciate the piercing light of the sun. If there was not difficulty, you would not need the Savior to walk you through the difficulty. We're in a nation full of people that are obsessed with getting rich and living at ease. The one thing the rich do not have is rich faith. The poor have that because they're in great need. How about Romans 13, verse 11? Say there when you were there. There's a perspective that we need to get about the nighttime. The perspective is something that will bless you. You there? Romans 13 and verse 11. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The Lord is looking for valiant men that understand the hour. If we can hang in here just a little while longer, we're going to see daybreak. One thing that I've noticed over the last 20 years is Christians get tired. They get tired of struggling against their flesh. They get tired of struggling against the world. And so they take weeks, months, and years off at a time. Jesus didn't take a day off in 33 years, friends. He didn't do it. He was doing the Father's will everywhere he went tirelessly. Show me somewhere in the scripture where Jesus just took some time to kick it with his homies, you know? It didn't happen. He separated himself to pray. He separated himself to speak with just them. But you just can't picture him laying in a hammock while the people were dying all around him, can you? I want to encourage you that if we understood the hour that we're at, you wouldn't give up at 545 if you knew sunrise was at 615. 
Don't get tired struggling in the dark. Take courage. If we take courage, the Lord will meet us in it, and we will meet him in it. Colossians 1.13 has been one of my favorite scriptures. Let's remember where he found us. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. You were rescued from darkness and endowed with the armor of light. And then guess what you get to do? You get to take courage and go after the brothers and sisters that still need to be delivered. Is this great salvation that we share about you only? Are you saved in Jesus? See, the problem with teaching for so long that Jesus died just for you is that we believe he died just for you. It's not true. He died for the world. And it applies to you. But when we say Jesus died just for me, it has a certain to hell with everybody else. And that's a problem because he cares very much about everybody else. Do you care about the people that are around you? Do you care about your neighbors? I got some neighbors that misunderstand us. They do. They, they, don't, they don't get us. They, they don't know why every Monday night there's 50 cars out there, and they don't like it. They don't know why there's loud music on a Monday night. I mean, who parties on a Monday night? They don't know why they see for months at a time people coming in and out of the house that seem to live there and aren't related to us. They don't get it. One time, one of the ladies from the elementary school called my wife and said, there's some giant strange man outside of your house. He's hairy. He looks like a Sasquatch. And he's kind of weird. Jennifer said, thank you very much. That's my son. He took a Nazarite vow trying to honor God. Um, all right, we'll talk later, okay? <laughs> they don't get us. And that can make it difficult to love them. It can be difficult to love them if they call the police and have your car towed because you're at a Bible study. It's been years since that happened, but it did happen. It can be difficult to love them because they don't love you. But it's not all that courageous if you don't, is it? See, any coward can act just like they do. It takes a man of courage to look into the darkness and say, I was rescued from that and I would like to extend you a helping hand. How about Revelation 21? The perspective of night is very temporary, friends. In Revelation 21, we find out just how temporary. Look at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there is no night there. There will be no night in the new Jerusalem. He says it in 22, 25 as well. There will be no night. 
The Bible story begins with darkness over the face of the waters, but God injected his light, and it separated light from darkness, and all the rest of the Bible is commentary on that verse. The living God uses you, armed soldiers of light, to separate out the things of darkness. And when his creation is finished, he will have rescued all that are willing to be rescued. And then the rest will be placed in punishment with the cowards. I want to make it into that kingdom, do you? There's no night there. We can't be a part of the things of the night. We need to be rescuing people from the power of the night. Now, they didn't just show courage. They didn't just fight through the night. They also planted. They planted a testimony in the land of Israel, basically that said, though these men, flesh was burned away, their bones are going to rise and be glorified again. Do you know that they carried Joseph's bones in another place in the scripture for about 400 years as a testimony that he would be risen from the dead. What kind of testimony do you have rattling around inside of you? You know, on this topic of night, before we leave it, Julius Caesar said something that has been quoted by Shakespeare and everybody else. He said, cowards die many times before their actual deaths. Sometimes we look at the circumstances around us and we're so scared about the circumstances that we anticipate an outcome that is worse than the actual reality. You know anybody that's given themselves an ulcer worried that they have cancer? What if they never had cancer? Say, so, well, all that worry was for nothing. What if they had cancer? Did all that worry help the cancer? We need to take courage in the face of our difficulties. We need to look them in the eye. And the death we die, we die once to Jesus. And then we live forever in his name. Amen. Look, this flesh, friends, is going to be burned away and the testimony that is left is going to be the resurrected body. That's going to be the testimony. Look at Matthew 13, 31. Say there when you're there. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Oh, my goodness. When you think about the kingdom power, it starts as small, something that is planted in you. There is this little book that pastors use very often, particularly pastors that like the Greek. It's, a, it's by a bishop in England named Westcott. He translated the Greek New Testament into English for us so that we didn't have to learn to read Greek. And so we really appreciate that, we pastors. Listen to what he says about this topic. Great occasions do not make heroes or cowards. They simply unveil them to the eyes of men. Silently, 
And imperceptibly, as we wake or sleep, we grow strong or weak. And at last, some crisis shows what we've become. We say, the reason I'm not doing well today is because all this has come against me. No, that is not the reason you're not doing well. The reason you're not doing well is the life is not founded on the rock. Because if the life is founded on the rock, the storms can beat against it and the house will not fail. All the circumstances do is reveal what you're built on and what is planted in you. Instead of resenting the circumstances, we can thank God for them because they reveal where we're really at. I'm miserable because I lost my job. Look, I understand it's a difficulty, friends. A lot of people lose jobs. But I wonder if you were miserable before you lost your job. And the reason that I wonder that is because some man might write me a paycheck, but I work for the living God. I can't lose that job. I was born in his presence. Say, well, I lost my house. It's okay. Jesus never had one. But... My health is struggling, but I know the one that can fix your health. See, the circumstances reveal whether we are courageous or cowardly. They reveal where we stand in our trust of the living God. Kind of like a gas gauge. Now, how many of you let that thing go down below an eighth of a tank? Yeah. Yeah, I know. My wife, did you answer yes to that? Oh, tell the truth. Do you let the gas gauge go down? Jennifer had a 44-gallon gas tank in a Suburban that she never put more than $5 worth of gas in. <laughs> Boz, you'll appreciate this. That fuel tank is, is made in a way that there's a fuel pump meant to be submerged in the, in the fuel, and that provides a cooling to the, to the motor. And we start burning them up, you know. And she's like, I don't know why we burn them up. I'm like, I don't either. And I get in her car and it's on empty. And then next week I get in her car and it's on empty. Friends, sometimes we're getting burned up because we're on empty. We need to get filled up with the Holy Ghost. Now look, there is this product that I've seen around the world. What do you call this? Coke. Coca-Cola. And when you're talking about Coca-Cola... There were some slogans. Now, you might remember a slogan from a different time because they change them every few years, right? But the, the slogan that I remember the best was in 1991. It was called The Real Thing. Do you know why they had to call it The Real Thing? Because they had just tried to pawn off this nastiness called New Coke. It was terrible. It's one of the biggest marketing blunders in the, in the history of the world. It was like 1989 to 1990. It was so bad that... People were looking anywhere for old stock of Coke. And so they came out with the real thing. Now, how do you know this is the real thing? Well, because they say it is. It's got the structure of the real thing. And maybe it's got a little bit planted in it. Susan, could you put on the screen James 1, 21 through 22? Listen what the word says about something planted in you. Somebody got all my coke out of here, huh? Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. 
Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Let me tell you, is this a Coke you want to buy? Why? <laughs> Could be Diet Pepsi. I've always wondered who drank Diet Pepsi. Now I know. Because it what? It doesn't have enough in it. I mean, I don't want to pay full price for that. Do you? Let me ask you something, Larissa. Did Jesus pay full price for you? Then doesn't he deserve the real thing filled to the brim? You wouldn't buy this off the shelf, would you? See, we want just enough word in us to say that we're saved. Hey, are you saved? Oh, yeah, man. John 3.16 says, for, 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 for. So can you quote another scripture? Absolutely. Matthew 7 says, do not judge lest you be judged. Amazing that those two are your favorite. And yeah, it's true. You might be the real thing, but there's so little of it there that you have to wonder if we're ripping off the one who purchased it. Hmm? Anybody in here want to pay for this? Jesus doesn't either. If he put a deposit in you, friends, it was so that you could yield to the deposit, so that you could well up with the deposit, so that you could grow in the deposit. By the way, in the book of Judges, the 15th chapter, in the 18th verse, we have a solution for that which is empty. Because he was thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up a hollow place. What's another way to say hollow place? An empty place in Lehi. And water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called in Hakor, and it's still there in Lehi. I love the Hebrews. They're so functional. They name their cities based on what happened there. Do you know what in Hakor means? It is a fountain for him who cries. If you find yourself, hold up that Coke bottle, Matthew. If you find yourself empty like this, there is a saving power in you, but you're just not full to the brim. In Hakor says, cry out to him. He will take that hollow place and he will fill it up and you'll be revived. I love this. You know what I need, Pastor, is I need this and this and this and this. Now, y'all know me what I tell them. You need the Holy Ghost. If we have his divine presence, we have everything we need. Now, I'm not going to lie. There are times you might need a bus pass, right? So that you can get filled with the Holy Ghost and witness on your way to work. So that you can go into an interview and start a better life for yourself. But if you are sitting around twiddling your thumbs talking about what you don't have, you need to remember the Inhakor principle. He will be a fountain for him who cries. The living God loves you enough not to leave you the way that you are. He loves you enough to fill you to the brim if you'll let him. The problem is we're settling for that. Throw it to me. We're settling for this. Anybody scared of this? Is this dangerous in any way? 
I mean, what is this good for? You know what this is? This is a remnant to remind you there was once Coke here. Isn't that very much what many churches have become? There was once a man, he created a movement, the movement became a machine, and now it's a monument to what once existed there. Where Christianity once reigned and has now dwindled to a place of near death. Turn with me to Revelation 3. Say there when you're there. Fill me up, Lord. Don't have to feel it. Get me drunk in the Holy Spirit. In Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What are the seven spirits of God, friends? That is the Holy Spirit of God. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Wow, what a harsh word. Somebody say, Pastor, that's harsh. Say, Jesus, you don't understand. I'm about half full. Jesus, there's more coke in me than there is in him. You know, this is where most of the charismatic community is. They like to point at those that don't believe in the manifestation of the gifts, and they say, look, we're doing good. When compared to who you're doing good? When compared to Jesus? You know, you've heard all your life the glass is half full. I'm here to tell you that Jesus just told the church of Sardis it's half empty. That's what he says. He says, you know what? You have a reputation for being alive. You have a reputation for being filled. But the truth is you're about half empty and filled with the world. Oh, friends, why would we settle for something like that? He said, but look, I can speak in other tongues. Ooh, look. I can prophesy. You know, a donkey prophesied in the Old Testament. That's why they're called gifts. It's not an endorsement of your life blanketly. It's a gift. It's a gift meant to edify another so that they might get filled up. We cannot run around with half full bottles claiming that we have all that we need. This is where I think most people settle. If you have to choose between the bottle on the left and the one on the right, which would you want? I would want, I'd want the one on the right, the one that's got more in it, wouldn't you? Maybe that is the, that's what we've been offered as a solution in our lives, all our lives. You can have a form of godliness with no power, or you can have a form of godliness with a little bit of power, as long as it's respectable and it's controlled, and it's safe, and it can be insured, and there's no real risk in it, and your mission trips don't risk getting anybody hurt. But what if the gospel of God is not like that at all? Start with me in Matthew. Oh, by the way, 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21 says we were redeemed from our empty way of life. You were redeemed from this portion of the bottle, friends. 
Don't live in it. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Now, you Bible scholars, what do you know that Matthew 21 is about? The last week of Jesus' life, what is that day? Matthew 21, what is it called? The triumphal entry. Oh, that he would make a triumphal entry today. Check this out. Matthew 21, starting verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while they cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. I want you to understand something. Jesus will enter your city if you will praise him. And when he enters the city, he fills it with himself. Now, let me ask you something. While this one's not very scary, even if I shake it up, could you open that? Open it. That get anybody wet? It was shook up, wasn't it? But there wasn't enough there. All right, Nolan, you ready? Come on, Nolan, give it a good shake, stir it up. Jesus has got it, man. You want to open it? No. Why not? Why don't you want, you want to open it? Come on, Lou, you want to open it? No. Why don't you want to open it? Because you get a Christian shook up, stirred up, and filled up. And the world's going to know it, friends. Let me ask you, what kind of Coke bottle are you? Where is your gas gauge? Are you on empty? Are you somewhere in the middle, otherwise called lukewarm? Are you stirred up? Because if you want to have an effect on those around you, we don't sit still and quiet for the consumption of a very few. We care about the world at large, and we stir ourselves as valiant men to go out, cross through the night, and remove the reproach and plant a testimony. You say, but those people didn't do all that well, and they were bad, and they might even deserve what they get. But Jesus deserves better. So you don't leave Saul's body on the wall. You don't leave Jonathan's body on the wall. You go rescue your brothers because you were rescued. Come on, who wants to get filled up in this place? I don't want to sit half full. I don't want to wallow around in mediocrity. In John 20, 19, Peter is hiding in an upper room. The scripture actually says on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Is that a courageous man? No, no he's terrified. Got a big yellow streak running down him. What happens to him though? In Acts 2, 1 through 4, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the 14th verse, oh my goodness, he is saying, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. 
This is a man who was not sitting still for quiet consumption. He was not half full and lukewarm. He was now full of the Spirit of God. He was stirred up. He was shaken. Fear's gone. He's full of courage and pressure. He can't wait to be unleashed on the world. He started with the Jews he was scared of, but then begins to address the world at large. You see, and this is the nature of faith. Faith and fear are enemies of each other. And what you were afraid of, faith will make you face. It'll make you say, I trust you, Lord. And that's why I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's be honest, you love the 23rd Psalm, but you don't want to live there, do you? I believe that the Lord is calling the people in this room to something more. Oh, we could sit and twiddle our thumbs and we could say somebody else will do it, but they haven't been. We could sit on our back and say the problem with our lives are all of these problems. Or we could say what's planted in us can be stirred up. It can well up. And if we don't have enough, we can ask for more and we can affect the world around us. I believe that when we hear of a home meeting where people are prophesying to each other and none of the pastors in the church or elders in the church are there, when people are leading worship and somebody steps in with a guitar and says, I can help, you go minister for a while. You know, JJ started to lead worship the other night. Nick picked up a guitar and joined him. At some point, even Teresa was leading worship without instruments. You know why? We're a kingdom of priests. They all had words for each other. They all had something to offer. It's like saying, hey, man, you fool yet? Almost there. You want a bite? Oh, let's both get there. They have the all-you-can-eat Holy Ghost buffet. By the way, I went to the Golden Corral the other day. I hadn't been there since I've been married. It's been 20 years. I didn't know what that place was. They ought to call that thing just a trough, man. That's the golden trough. But I noticed something. When people can get all they want, they want a lot. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I saw a prime rib that looked like a dinosaur slab. You know, a 60-pound boy carrying a 5-pound prime rib. And it goes back three times. Yeah, somebody said hallelujah. <laughs> That's not even getting into the all-you-can-eat soft-serve ice cream and all those things. Why are they going back to get so much? Why were they not satisfied with a mostly empty body? Bo body, that's true too. Why were they not satisfied with a half full? Why did they want to get filled to the brim? Well, the price of admission had been paid, and after that, they could get all they wanted. I'm telling you, the price of admission is paid, and you can get all you want. Why settle for a little bit? Are you snacking on the appetizers of the Holy Ghost, or are you swimming in the full course meal? Oh, you can just go on, hear another sermon, say amen, and leave. Or you can get filled up with the Holy Ghost. I won't get filled up with the Holy Ghost. Cody, you won't get filled up with the Holy Ghost? Why don't we stand to our feet?